MGM cast her in uh, Cabin in the Sky in 1943. It was an all-black musical. It had been on Broadway previously. And Lena was excited about that. She worked with the sensitive director, Vincent Minnelli. Um, the all-star cast in Cabin in the Sky included Ethel Waters and Eddie Rochester Anderson. Uh, Duke Ellington was, uh, made an appearance in the movie. And so it, it just looked so promising for her. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. What kind of performer are you most interested by? We talked to scholar Donald Bogle about Lena Horne's struggle in Hollywood. Tracy Gossel about a project to restore and share William S. Hart's films, and Pamela Hutchinson on maybe the greatest film about a life of performance, The Red Shoes. A podcast listener who relies upon the doubtful comforts of human love can never be a great podcast listener. Subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, and if you are so inclined, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you, my dear. African-American actors and actresses are commonly cast in films. They're cops, doctors, retired CIA agents, Klingons, mathematicians at NASA, and Marvel superheroes. But it took decades for them to get there, and the sacrifices of hugely talented performers who didn't get the chances they deserved. One such was Lena Horne, brought to Hollywood in a fit of optimism, by progressive-minded figures at the studios in the early 40s. That optimism quickly ran into the reality of how much audiences, and maybe more crucially, theater owners in the South, were willing to accept a star who looked like her. That's the story that Donald Bogle, the leading historian of African Americans in classic Hollywood, tells in a new TCM and Running Press book, Lena Horne, Goddess Reclaimed. A professor at NYU's Tisch School for the Arts and the University of Pennsylvania, Professor Bogle and I spoke from his home in New York City. Many years ago, when my wife was in law school, I don't know what class this was, but she did a paper coming out of one of your books. I think it's the one with the title that I don't entirely feel comfortable recording oh, myself yes, saying. Oh, yes, Thompson's 
mulattoes, mammies, and bucks. Yes. Yeah, that one. Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, she wound up really getting interested in the first version of Imitation of Life and mm-hmm. uh, the story of Freddie Washington. I think Nina Mae McKinney figured in this a bit, too, uh, just how those were African-American stars who were sort of ready for Hollywood, but Hollywood wasn't ready for them at all. Now, in the book, I have um, I have a picture of Freddie Washington and a picture of Nina Mae McKinney that before Lena Horne in Hollywood, that there were these two actresses who um, who, who had the, the glamour and the dramatic power to be real stars. Nina Mae McKinney in Hallelujah in 1929, and Freddie Washington in the original 1934 version of Imitation of Life. Those two women, they, you know, they made an impact, but nothing else happened for them later. I mean, they did other work, but they never got the real kind of star buildup and the kind of roles that uh, that an actress needs if she wants to have a, a, a career that takes her to uh, another level in Hollywood. Lena Horne, when she was in Hollywood in the early 40s, and when MGM signed her to a contract, the the industry was beginning to change some. Um, World War II had come, and um, and there were there were things in the black press talking about um, images in Hollywood. And um, MGM uh, decided to 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 use Lena Horne um, in a different way, and um, and and the studio did give her a star buildup. They they worked hard to um, to find to photograph her in a certain way, to find the right kind of makeup for her, um, a makeup that ended up being disastrous. It just wasn't the right color for her. <laughs> but nonetheless, they, they did do this, this buildup with, with her. And, um, and Lena Horne herself was excited about it and the possibility of becoming a, um, an actress in, in, in Hollywood motion pictures. Uh, MGM cast her in uh, Cabin in the Sky, in 1943, it was an all-black musical. It had been on Broadway previously. And Lena was excited about that. She worked with the sensitive director, Vincent Minnelli. Um, the all-star cast in Cabin in the Sky included Ethel Waters and Eddie Rochester Anderson. Uh, Duke Ellington was, uh, made an appearance in the movie. And so it, it just looked so promising for her. She had a good role. And Vincent Minnelli, who really took an interest in her career, um, worked hard with her to to present her in the right way. And um, shortly afterwards, MGM lent her to 20th Century Fox to play another role in another all-star black cast film, Stormy Weather. And then after that, that was it for the roles for Lena Horne in, in Hollywood in the 1940s. She would not play another role in, um, in films. And what MGM did was that uh, they, they did have her, as you know, uh, in musical segments of movies that would, they would have white stars. And, um, and the stars in these films would often go out perhaps for 
for a night at a club or whatever, and Lena Horne would appear. She would look terrific. She would sing a song, sometimes two, and then disappear from the movie. Right. And um, and it, it, it Lena Horne became increasingly frustrated. And the other thing with these musical segments, she said that she learned when she started to entertain the black troops during the Second World War, where she went to military bases, that the uh, the, the black soldiers were telling her um, that the movies in which she was billed as appearing, when they saw them, Lena Horne was not in the films, that, that her sequences had, had been clipped. And um, and this just, you know, it just, you know, it, it came to be very, very frustrating for Lena Horne. And, and the role that she really wanted to play was the role of Julie, the mulatto, in, the, um, in MGM's remake of Showboat. And um, Showboat had been a great American musical. There had been a movie version. Uh, there had been one in, thir- in 29. There had been another in 36. And, um, and the character of Julie was played by a white actress. And Lena Horne wanted to play that role. Her heart was set on it. And MGM did a film called Till the Clouds Roll By. And they had musical numbers from Showboat, and they used Lena Horne at, at the opening of the film, singing from Showboat, and dressed up like the character uh, Julie. And she thought that now she would get this, this big role. But when MGM made the film, um, they ended up using Ava Gardner in the role of, of Julie. And um, Lena Horne was, was uh, good friends with Ava Gardner, um, but it really, again, this got to her. I think that was, in a sense, she made a few other films afterwards, but that was really it for her in Hollywood at that time. I think she just saw it was a dead end for her, and um, they just weren't going to do any, anything else. It, it, I, I think it was very difficult for her. Yeah, no, it seems like, I mean, MGM at first seems to be full of good intentions and some awareness that the black community was, you know, an important movie-going community uh, to reach out to. But it just came down to ultimately they couldn't pair her with anybody on screen except another black performer. And there weren't male, serious male actors except Paul yeah, Rose. No, and they weren't gonna, yeah, they weren't going to pair her with a... Uh, uh, a, a white leading man that was not going to happen and um and aside from her leading the leading men uh, issue with with black leads um they they just didn't have movies that i mean they weren't making movies that right. um that that dealt with 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 african americans i mean um they 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 did the studio and, and films in hollywood did change during the war years and you would see um you see glimpses of, of of things to come uh there was a movie called in this our life and there, there was a black character in it played by ernest anderson and he was very serious and wanted to study law and so forth but that was just you know what the movie wasn't about him right and about his uh his situation so it it, it just uh the, 
the industry changed in some ways. And Walter White, the executive secretary of the NAACP, during the war years, he, he went to Hollywood to meet with industry leaders, those who would see him, and he was asking for, for, for new types of roles for African Americans. And so while there might be some things in, in bits in films, there were no new films dealing really with, with African American characters as the as the leads that happened after the war right that happened at you know 1949 then it 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 changed in many respects and then in the 1950s you had um Dorothy Dandridge and Sidney Poitier but that happened um that was something that was part of a new generation and not of of Lena's time at the at the studio Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting, I think, that uh, in some ways, you know, I think she was acceptable at that early point as much as she was, because she really didn't come off that black. You know, she she didn't particularly look black. She didn't, and she didn't sing in like a bluesy or a jazzy style. No, she didn't. No, she didn't sing in that. No, she didn't. And that was one of the things, even before she got to Hollywood, um, her her singing style and her, her material she really didn't do um, material associated with African Americans. She didn't do blues, and later she didn't really do rhythm and blues. They were basically she did um, sometimes standards or show tunes, and it was she it, it, she did it did those songs in films, and she also in her nightclub appearances, and the studio also with with Lena Horn. Um, there was the idea that maybe audiences wouldn't think she was black, that they might think she was South American or something. And actually her, her first film at MGM, it, it was a musical segment in a movie called Panama Hattie starring Ann Southern. And Lena Horne has two numbers in it. And, um, and they might have mistaken her for, for being, um, uh, for being uh, a Latina. And um, the studio didn't publicize her in that way. They they did, you know, publicize her ultimately as being a black performer. But in terms of the way audiences may have perceived her, um, she just had a whole other kind of look and she had a whole other kind of singing style. One thing about her, her, her singing style and her material before Hollywood, she, um, when she was making her way as, as a singer, um, it, she appeared at a very progressive nightclub in New York called Cafe Society. And Cafe Society had um, integrated, audi- uh, integrated audiences as well as black performers performing. Previously, when Lena Horne had been at the Cotton Club, um, as, as a very young, actually a teenager uh, in the uh, early 30s. She was about 16 when she started performing. At the Cotton Club, there were black entertainers, but blacks were not in the audience. The club didn't let them in unless they were really famous. Cafe Society changed that, but there was the whole thing there. Uh, the man who ran the club, Barney Josephson, who I interviewed, he realized that Lena just didn't have a feel for this other kind of uh, music. 
and um and and he saw what she was doing and 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 that she was a stylist in another way and he went with it and that's how she began to really she had already been working but but to establish herself um in in nightclubs as a um as a black woman who was uh singing a different kind of material and had, had a different kind of style you know one thing about Lena Horne one of the hallmarks of her singing style was um was very much her 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 diction she she enunciated words perfectly and um she wasn't so much a number of the great blues singers who had preceded her um people like Bessie Smith or Ma Rainey who had been much earlier um they were dealing with with sounds in in their music and you might not always understand the lyrics but Lena you did another one who preceded Lena who mastered um the the lyrics and as far as communicating with audiences was Ethel Waters who though Lena Horne didn't really say it um she really looked up to Ethel Waters she really did and um but Lena now was she comes to Hollywood she's she's um she's young she's She's beautiful in a certain kind of way. We know there are many different beauty standards, and Lena met a certain standard that Hollywood uh, could deal with and mainstream audiences could, and black audiences. Um, just about everyone who saw her uh, felt she was a beautiful woman. And they were willing, um, when she was in clubs and so forth, uh, they were willing to, to simply sit and look at her, quite frankly. <laughs> And, 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 and Lena felt that she didn't necessarily like it. Um, but, but that was another, another thing, but she developed over the years, uh, she, she developed into a really important song stylist. And I don't think people realized how hard she worked at perfecting her style. Um, and her second husband, Lenny Hayden, um, was, uh, was she always credited him with helping her to to sing better and uh to be even more distinctive she also credited the um arranger composer Billy Strayhorn who uh worked with um Duke Ellington and was a major figure um with him with his arrangements helping her to um to with the arrangements to do music that would work best for her and that would stretch her talents. Phil Moore was another arranger composer, uh African American who she who she worked with and who helped her with with her style. She was very very conscious of the fact that many people initially felt she could not sing, that she was just a beauty. Um but she felt she had something that you know with with her style and she was determined to to really perfect it. She was she was a hard worker. She really was. Um and people I never saw her in the clubs, but um it, people who saw her, I mean they said it was um it, it it just was an extraordinary experience. I mean this live presence there and the kind of music that she was doing um and and doing so well as as time went on. 
Yeah. Well, let's let's back up a little to her beginning. She grew up in, as you say, the black bourgeoisie in Brooklyn. Uh, her grandmother was, you know, a powerful figure there. Apparently yes. uh, got uh, Paul Robeson his scholarship at Rutgers. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, her grandmother, Cora. Um, Cora Calhoun Horn. Her, her, her grandmother was very, very progressive. She was educated. And, um, and, and Lena's grandfather as, as well. They, they um, uh, came from the South. They, they went to, to Brooklyn in New York and, and settled there. And um, they had a very, very um, uh, uh, middle-class experience. I mean, and, and, and Lena was growing up in that. Her grandmother could be quite demanding. And her grandmother believed in, in education and social progress. Uh, the grandmother, um, as you mentioned, she helped Robeson get a scholarship at a, at a young age. She was friendly with um, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, the great African-American uh, leader, and, and also with Walter White, who became the executive secretary of the NAACP. So uh, the, the grandmother had all of this, and, and the grandfather was cultivated. But what happened to Lena, um, her father and her mother separated when she was very young. And Lena adored her father. Uh, with her mother, it, there were always um, conflicts. And um, the mother was an aspiring actress, performer. And um, when the parents separated, Lena for a time lived with her grandparents. And that really gave her a certain kind of stability and security. But then her mother came and um, and took her out of that out of the home of her grandparents, and the mother was traveling on the road uh, to, to perform in road shows, and took Lena with her, and um, it, it was a very lonely, disjointed um, childhood for Lena. Right. Uh, con- constantly moving, uh, not really being able to. Um, to make a lot of friends, and and she felt it, and um, and when she was in her teens, she was back in Brooklyn uh, for time with with her grandmother again. But then her mother once again took her um, away, and the mother had remarried, and and then the mother. Um, who now was getting older and and realized that her chances at a career in show business, um, because of the age factor, particularly with women, that it wasn't going to happen. Right. And that's when she pushed Lena into, um, into, into having this career and, and pushed Lena um, into auditioning for the Cotton Club, and, and that's how the Lena Horn career began. Well, and also, I mean, she married quite young and had a daughter, and, which seems kind of like I need to get out of my mother's life and into my own life, you know, what a lot of people do at that point, um, which is probably not what the grandmother and people like that had expected from her. No, no, not at all. Um, the grandmother and, and the grandfather, he was still living when, when Lena went into this marriage. Uh, she married a, a young man, um, also middle class, in Pittsburgh. Louis Jones, and she married him. Um, interestingly enough, Lena's father 
who they called Teddy, Teddy Horn. Um, he was he was a smooth, uh, slick um, kind of fellow, as as Lena would be quick to tell people. Um, she just adored him. But the father didn't feel the marriage was for her. And nonetheless, she married Lewis Jones. Um, she later said she knew nothing about being uh, a wife or what was expected of a wife at that particular time. Um, and the marriage just, it, it, it wasn't working. She had a daughter um, and then tried to make the marriage work again. And then she had a, a son. And after the birth of her son, um, she knew then that, you know, the marriage, uh, it, it, it wasn't going to work at all. And that's when she really went back to, uh, to her career, that she um, had to establish herself as a, uh, she already had something of a name, but she had stopped when she married Lewis Jones. And, um, and then she, when she went back, she had to um, sort of reestablish herself and even make more of a, of a, of a dent on, um, on, on, in the world of show business. So it was, there were hard times for Lena Horne. And uh, I'll tell you that I, when I was, I mean, working on the book in the, in the beginning, it really seemed as if things just came to Lena Horne, that her mother had gotten her into the, the Cotton Club and, and she performed. And so she didn't seem at first glance to have much, much drive or ambition. But that wasn't true at all. Yeah, yeah. You know, as I as I looked at at these key moments in her career, she had real drive because Lena Horne could easily have disappeared after she um, had the children and had briefly left show business. She could have disappeared at other times, but she didn't. And it was her drive that um, this real ambition she had, and again her desire to really be a better entertainer, a better singer, um, that just propelled her on. So she had a career that lasted decades. Um, and many other women didn't. Right. Now, and I thought it was really interesting that, uh, you know, when she first goes to Hollywood, there's a lot of talk, and I think maybe it's even in her contract, that she would not be playing maids. She would not be playing the you know, the usual way you used a black performer as a supporting character. You know, she was sort of demanding to be treated, you know, as a, as a main attraction. And ultimately they couldn't really fulfill that, but it, it was striking that they went into it thinking that at all. Well, you know, that's also what's important about her career, no matter how it turned out at MGM, that um, she didn't play maids. Because um, black women in movies before her, and there were some very talented actresses, um, women like Hattie McDaniel and uh, Louise Beavers, who was in the original 1934 Imitation of Life. She played the mother in it. Freddie Washington played her daughter. But most black women in, in, in the movies in Hollywood before Lena, they did play these maids. And... Again, Walter White at the NAACP, who took this, who had known Lena's grandmother and who took an interest in her career, he did not want to see her playing maids. 
and MGM um, didn't cast her at Mates. It, it's interesting that she she did test for a movie called Cairo, um, and it was a maid role, but she felt it wasn't. She felt it wasn't a stereotype maid. Um, she ended up not playing that role. Actually, Ethel Waters ended up playing it, but the studio did not cast her as a maid. So that and that meant something. And uh, it, it meant something in terms of images in Hollywood that here was a black woman who um, who didn't play that kind of role, and um, and so Lena also in terms of her glamour in films and these musical segments and the kind of self empowerment or um, dignity that she projected in these musical interludes. Um, the, those two prove very important in 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 in, in the world of uh, of black images on the silver screen. It it really did. She made um, more of a mark, even though she didn't go where she should have gone. Um, but she made she did make a mark, and and it was a transition um, in the forties to what, as I mentioned, uh, audiences were to see in in the fifties. Although even in the fifties. There weren't enough black actresses working in, sure. in big roles in Hollywood. Dorothy Dandridge was about the only one. Kind of Eartha Kitt played some movie roles. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. And, then, you know, she basically left Hollywood to go back to the nightclubs. And I mean, that's really where she's a star. I kind of didn't even think of her as a movie star. You know, I thought of her as more of just the sort of general performer. Uh, you know, you have pictures in the in the latter part of the book of like her on the Dean Martin show and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. that's Television, the kind. Of, yeah. yeah, that's the kind of uh, context that I grew up with her in. You know, more than movies, certainly. But there's an interesting quote here. Um, As her style has developed, she seems to have withdrawn further and further from her audience and into herself. She never addresses her listeners directly, and her eyes are closed, or nearly closed, a good part of the time. In acknowledging applause, she tilts her head, eyes cast down, and bends and turns with a kind of Asiatic self-effacement. It's just interesting that she developed this sort of reserve or remove from the audience in that time that's the opposite of kind of shucking and jiving for the, the crowd Precisely. or anything like that. Precisely. She she was very aloof uh, when she was on the nightclub, um, uh, uh, appearing in nightclubs. Um, it, it was the idea with Lena Horne, and, um, and I think I have a quote from her. In, I know I do have a quote from her in the book. I, don't, I can't give it to you verbatim right now, but... It, but it was that she held back when she was in the clubs um, performing because the idea that the audience could could get the entertainer, but they couldn't get the woman. Yeah. That she she really felt in the clubs that uh, they were assessing her. That it, it, even perhaps it, it was like being on an auction block. So she just held back in giving them something, and. The interesting thing is that audiences love that about her, that aloofness. That, you know, it just made her um, even more of a of a goddess. I mean, because she was untouchable, and she said that it wasn't until 
later that she began to talk during her performances and talk to 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 an audience. But she did have that, you know, it was a kind of self-protection she had um, with this this distance that she created between herself and, and the audiences in, in the clubs. And and the audiences nonetheless loved her. Um, you know, they just found that so intriguing and, um, and frankly, desirable. So, um, so it worked for her. It, it, it worked very, um, it worked very well. But you know, Mike, one thing that you, you were saying about her, about you didn't think about her as, um, you thought of her more with TV than the movies. Um, and I think that that is what, what happened generally with, with, the way people would think of her. But for that audience during those war years, um, when she was working in Hollywood and so forth, particularly with the African-American audience, that audience felt great about seeing her in, in, those, um, in, in those films. Um, and that audience really detected that this was totally different from the way most black women um, were when they, when they worked in, um, in, in Hollywood films. So it, the, the movies had an impact during those years. And, um, and then of course, you know, when television really becomes important in American cultural life, it's in the 1950s and with the, the changes and so forth happening, she, she realized that she needed television, that that was going to, um, you know, that was going to keep her visible for the audience and so forth um, and keep her name out there. And, um, and, and with the TV appearances in themselves, they were important, but they also meant that, that people would be even uh, more eager to see her live in the clubs. So it all worked that, that way for her. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, you'd say at one point that there was an opportunity to give her a variety show that no no network took. I, I think it was Nat King Cole who eventually got the first one. Yep. And even then, you know, there were stations that wouldn't play it in the South and things like that, you know. Precisely. There's always troglodytes running something, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, she... She was very, very mainstream in my memory. I mean, she's just one of those people. I mean, it's like there's Eartha Kitt, who was Catwoman. Here's Lena yes, Horn. Yes, you know, yes. and I thought if it was interesting. I haven't seen any of the That's Entertainment films in a million years. They're sort of redundant now in the age of home yeah. video. But you know, you you talk about how it's kind of poignant to have her walking around the MGM lot because unlike say Gene Kelly. You know, it wasn't a particularly happy experience for her. Certainly not no. a fully satisfying one. Um, and in, you know, the the film that is selling nostalgia the hardest in the mid-70s, you know, it's not entirely nostalgic for her. No, no. And it's interesting that, you know, the other stars, what you're saying, that Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and, and uh, Debbie Reynolds and uh, I think Donald O'Connor, I mean, in, in the... In the, uh, in the in the in the that center there there were three of them, but in the first two those star and also in the, in the third the stars are looking back and thinking of the days that 
you know, were wonderful and now are gone and so forth. Um, Lena's commentary is is totally different from the other stars when she um, when she talks about her her career, and she doesn't come across as bitter, but you can detect that uh, you know the bitterness that's there, and and she actually is saying um, that that it was um, it was not really um, always a happy time for her. And um, and she gets into Showboat and and losing the movie role in Showboat in the um, in the early in the early fifties. It's it's an interesting thing to see her in in that's Entertainment Three when she um, she does address something that that the others in, in in that's Entertainment that they don't and and that's that um, the this discrimination that was in the, the industry. And, um, she doesn't use tough language, um, in her commentary, uh, in, in that's entertainment three, but you know, that it's, um, that, that it's, you know, it was painful for her and you, and you can see her resentment. And she, um, she does talk about, you know, she had in, in cabin in the sky, the film from 1943, she had had a bathtub, bubble bath sequence, and um, they cut it out of the film. And, you know, there's been discussion as to what was going on there. Was it the censors? Was it this black woman who uh, was so uh, desirable and so forth? But they cut it out, and they showed it in That's Entertainment 3. Um, but that kind of thing for her, um, it just, um, it just stayed with her that, you know, she didn't, she didn't forget these things that, that had happened. Um, and it was significant in that's entertainment three that she bring this to the forefront and looking back on, on Hollywood history and those movies that had entertained millions, but there were things obviously in Hollywood that, that were not perfect. I mean, what do you see her somewhat abortive Hollywood career, you know, as, as advancing the, uh, the image of African-American performers? I mean, assume somebody like Dorothy Dandridge kind of started at a slightly later place. Cause Lena Horne had already been there. Um, I don't know. Does that, do you think that's well, true? Dandridge actually, you know, Dorothy Dandridge worked in, the movies as a little girl oh, true. and as a teenager. That's right. She's in Day at the Races, isn't she? Yes, yes. And she's with um, her sis, her older sister, Vivian, and another girl, her name was Etta Jones, and they were billed as the Dandridge sisters, the three of them. So Dorothy Dandridge had worked in, in, in the movies and uh, and had done musical things and so forth. Um, but by the 50s, and, and I do think that that Lena had, had cleared the way, um, and, and the times themselves, she was, she was a good person at, 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 in a way, the right person at the right, right time for this shift. Um, she wasn't the right person in terms of what Hollywood was willing to do. Um, but she had presented something new. And then in, in the, uh, late forties, Hollywood deals with movies with the race theme, 
uh, movies like Home of the Brave and Lost Boundaries and Intruder in the Dust and Pinky. Sure. And um, and then in 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 the fifties, Dandridge is able after you know really a it's been a long career from the time she was a little girl and her ambition to be a dramatic movie actress that was always what she wanted when she was a girl and it comes to fruition in it for her in the in the 50s uh when she does bright road uh, an mgm movie from 53 and then when she gives her oscar nominated performance in carmen jones in 1954 and my feeling about lena horn um i think that you know in the 1950s on the nightclub circuit, there were other black women who were performing and making names for themselves. Eartha Kitt was one. Um, a little bit later, Diane Carroll. Um, but the, the, the main one, and the one I think Lena saw as, as possibly her only rival at that time, and that was Dorothy Dandridge. Because Dorothy Dandridge... Um, she was big in the nightclubs, but she also played these dramatic roles and, and these roles that Lena had not gotten a chance at. And um, and I think that that got to, to Lena Horne. Um, it's interesting because I point out in the book that, that in the mid-50s, Dorothy Dandridge um, integrated the Empire Room at the Waldorf Astoria. The Waldorf Astoria, you know, the the poshest of hotels and the Empire Room um, where there was the Supper Club. It was big room and, I mean, just known for um, audiences that, you know, come came in who, who, who were rich and sophisticated. And uh, Dandridge was the first black to play the Empire Room. And I think that got to Lena Horne that she felt, you know, what was happening to her her career, that this younger woman had now broken down a barrier. And then Lena did, not that long afterwards, the Waldorf Astoria did sign Lena Horne to appear at, at the Empire Room. And Lena went all out for that. And she had a, she had a big success and also did an album that was huge at the time, uh, Lena Horne at the Waldorf. Um, but she had made the way. She had broken down certain barriers, I mean, by working in Hollywood and other clubs, not the Waldorf. She hadn't broken that down that one. But others she had broken down that um, other entertainers could could benefit from. And um, But I do think that, that Dandridge was the star that she... Um, that because she was, they were also compared in the press, um, so I think that that uh, you know that sort of rattled Lena Horne. For you sure. know, one thing else I should just mention with this is that late in her life, uh, Lena Horne did her her Broadway show, Lena Horne, the Lady and her mute and her music, and this was a resounding hit for Lena Horne. And it, it was basically a one-woman show. They, they did have other performers in there sort of backing her up at certain moments. But it was really Lena, and she talked about Hollywood. Yeah. And, um, and she talked about Showboat. 
and she brought everything together in that performance and got absolute raves from the critics and it was a it was a huge popular hit as um as well so hollywood experience was right there on stage um, right <laughs> the, the ups and downs so all right. Well, thank okay. you very well, Mike, much for doing this. Okay. Well, good talking to you. Give you your too. wife my best. <laughs> I will. I'm glad that she, you know, my first book, Tell Her It's Out, the fifth edition of Tom Scoon's A Lot of Mammies and Bucks. It has a whole lot of additional information. Nice. Can't that man Donald Bogle's Lena Horn, Goddess Reclaimed, is out now from TCM and Running Press. Cabin in the Sky will be released on January 30th on Warner Archive Blu-ray. Links for both will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. In 2021, the George Eastman Museum launched a project with the participation of many other archives to find and restore as many of Western star William S. Hart's films as could be found. Maybe at some point we'll talk with them about this project in the macro sense. But in the meantime, I chatted with Tracy Gossel, previously on this podcast, to talk about her work with Douglas Fairbanks Films and the Biograph Project, to talk about the ones she got from the Library of Congress and has already put out, 1917's Wolf Lowry, plus two shorts. I spoke with her from her home in California. Wolf Lowry um, played at the Pordenone Silent Film Festival, a, I won't call it a new restoration, but I'll call it a reconstruction uh, performed by the Library of Congress from largely 28 millimeter uh, elements they had, but the uh, end of the film was found in 35 millimeter because the 28 millimeter print had been uh, cut down and um, they had uh, cut, shortened the ending, uh, which was kind of a, a poignant, sad, lonely ending for our hero. And uh, but the the Library of Congress version that played at Pordenone hadn't been stabilized and cleaned and and had the digital work that. Um, you optimally want to do. And when the pandemic began and Film Preservation Society was suddenly not in a position to get reels of film shipped to us, either by Library of Congress or MoMA, because everybody was home. (laughs) Nobody was coming into an office or going anywhere. Uh, I suggested to David Pierce that they could send us the digital files of their William S. Hart that they had prepared for um, the William S. Hart uh, section of the 2019 Portanone, because there's a a larger William S. Hart project going on whereby many of his films are being um, worked on by different different groups, Bologna, Library of Congress, etc. And uh, he readily agreed and sent us a number of 
uh, features and two real shorts that Hart had had done that LOC had assembled. And so we cleaned up and stabilized both Wolf Lowry and Bad Buck of Santa Inez and um, uh, paid for the score. Donald Sosen, of course, who's marvelous, and put it out as our fourth Blu-ray release for Film Preservation Society. Yeah, I mean, you you normally do Douglas Fairbanks, obviously, and the Biograph mm-hmm. Project, uh, both of which we've talked about here. So, so why did you? Want we to... also many kisses. The the oh, right. um, Richard Dix film, which was the very first film appearance of Harpo Marx. So there were, you know, we and our next, our upcoming uh, anticipated next release. Sorry for the dogs in the background. <laughs> will be um, Claire Bow. Oh, double nice. feature. And now that's not confirmed yet because we need to get some rights from Paramount, but that is the current uh, plan is to release Claire Bow. It's not confirmed, but it's, it's anticipated and planned, and I'm very hopeful that it will be. And so I'm not naming the films, but I am... I am cheerfully naming the star. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so what got you interested in in doing this heart film in particular, or any heart films? Well, any heart film, um, in part because William S. Hart has been uh, neglected. And his films uh, are really remarkably good Um a wonderful book by William K. Everson, and I forget the name of the other co-author, called The Westerns was written in the 70s. And um, this book when that I read when I was much younger um, made it clear that most of the movie cowboys were sort of costumed circus entertainers, whereas Hart was truly invested in representing the West. The way it was, and um, the the you know down to the details of the costuming and um, everything else. So his westerns were more authentic and little known, very rarely recognized. Is how good a director Hart was. Uh, I think it was Hell's Hinges that was included on the first um, box set from. Was it the AFI, the National Film yes. Registry? Remember? Right. Yeah. Uh, Hell's Hinges, and I was dazzled uh, by the maturity of his directing style in 1917, 1916, uh, even 1915, when you know people were just starting to imitate Griffith, but he was already uh, incredibly mature and... Um, talented director and people think of him as an icon uh, sort of the, one of the faces if you were going to do a Mount Everest or not Mount Everest Mount, um, Rushmore. Mount Rushmore of American films you know certainly American silent films you would William S. Hart's face would be one of the faces on there I was so impressed with the body of work that I saw in Port Noni in 2019 that I wanted to do something with him, but also 
again, it was sort of a twist of fate. I wouldn't have taken time away from the Biograph Project um, at that time had it not been for a pandemic. And the pandemic meant we could not get any material, um, except for that which was already scanned. And so that included the the hearts. But in retrospect, I'm really, really delighted that we did so. And I urge everybody to uh, buy the Blu-ray for more than one reason. Yes, we have a William S. Hart feature and a William S. Hart um, two-reel short, but better, as good as that, if not better, we have a biograph, 1913 biograph, that is never seen. It's only been shown publicly once in Portanone in its 1920s um, re-edited version with all these dialogue intertitles thrown in and padded and stretched. But we restored um, this biograph, which is called The Sheriff's Baby, to um, its original form. And The Sheriff's Baby is truly the first version of The Three Godfathers. And the three bank robbers are um, Harry Carey, Lionel Barrymore, and Henry B. Waffle. It, it is one of my favorite biographs because there's a sequence that probably lasts no longer than 90 seconds where the three banditos are looking down and at this living baby and, you know, what are they going to do with it? They're on the run from the sheriff. They don't, they don't know that it is in fact the sheriff's own baby that is being sent, motherless baby being sent with relatives, um, to safer territories, all the people uh, with the baby have died of thirst, and um, they they just look. These three hardened criminals look at this baby, and at first it's like, well, how do we kill it quickly? Right. And they, you know, well, hold it up. I'll shoot. No way. We we can club it with a no. How about Yikes. we hit it, head it now? And finally, as it progresses, and the baby grabs their. Um, reaches and actually grabs the butt of the gun, they decide the best thing to do would be to feed it. So they <laughs> they take a can of condensed milk and mix it with their very precious water, feed the baby, and then Harry Carey slings that little one like a little sack of peas under his arm and off they run. And I, I just, it's the most exquisite 90 seconds of pantomime and uh, both roughness and tenderness uh, and sort of an evolution uh, that you will see in silent films. It's just marvelous. And if, you know, if you're a Biograph fan, if you've been following us on the Biograph Project, you will want to get this William S. Hart um, Blu-ray just for for the sheriff's baby. Yeah, I mean, so other people are working on other heart films for this. Yes, they they are, and uh, George Eastman House or Museum, excuse me, and others. But I can name the hearts that were given to us, um, and they, we will eventually get them all out. One is a two reel uh, 1915 western called "The Taking of Luke McVeigh." It's 
it's got a tragic end. I would say never fall for a babe named Mercedes. Um, <laughs> there's a wonderful, a wonderful film called The Return of Draw Egan. Right, I've he's seen that. He's a one. reformed highwayman, and now he's marshal of this small town. But one of his gang members turns up and threatens to disclose his identity. Um, uh, there is a non-Western, this uh, Canadian kind of northern trapper. Uh, film uh, called Blue Blazes Rotten, and this is really, really wonderful film. Uh, what happens if you kill evil Robert McKim, who of course you remember as the villain from Zorro, uh, Doug Zorro, you kill him in a fair fight, but his darling elderly mother shows up looking for him, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what's going to happen? Um, there's a film that I really adore. Uh, called The Silent Man. Robert McKim, again, is the bad guy. He's an evil bar owner who marries women, uh, quote-unquote, marries them, and then traffics them as dance hall girls, showing that, you know, some issues, uh, some bad human behaviors are as old as time. You know, we think that uh, trafficking people as sex workers is, is a modern thing. But uh, you got a preacher, you got a burning church, you got a heroine with a kid brother and a stolen claim and everything. Um, if you ever saw the Frederick March um, movie where he plays a minister and. Um, uh, one foot in heaven? Exactly. His little boy was caught going to the movies and he's on the verge of punishing him. But to be fair, he needs to see a movie first to see whether, you know, they are as evil and sinful as they're reported to be. And the film that he goes to see with his little boy is The Silent Man, where William S. Hart saves the, the people with the burning church, and he decides that, you know, these are godly people and that moving pictures are okay. It's What's really funny is if you look carefully at the scenes outside the theater, they used an original Doug Fairbanks poster for, um, oh, Lordy, uh, I'm blanking on the film, but it was his, his, his early one for Artcraft, which was released through Paramount. And they just sort of stuck William S. Hart's name on huh. the bottom. It had the camera such that it cut off the, the face. It was, you know, so you didn't see that it was Doug. And um, uh, it's like, oh, if I could only go back to that set and pull those posters down off the <laughs> right, wall, because right. I'm sure out. Um, but anyway, The Silent Man is, uh, when we do Hard Again, I think that will be um, uh, one that we do uh, very early. There was um, a two-reel film called The Bargain, which made... Um, William S. Hart, uh, a star. It was sort of his first Western, um, but that came from a paper print, believe it or not. But I think we can, we can really help that one. Um, anyway, there are lots of wonderful William S. Hart's that others are doing, uh, but that's the, the, the collection that we have. And everybody is trying to very carefully coordinate with each other so that we don't overlap and have 
two entities investing the time and money to restore the same film. Sure. Uh, there are so many films in so little time. You know, is there a a goal that this project has that uh, they'll all get shown together or anything like that? Excellent question. I have no idea. I'm afraid <laughs> that in this world of archives and and such, we are considered small fry, if perhaps no fry at all. You know, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're the small privately funded um, uh, nonprofit that's primarily known for uh, doing the Biograph Project, and we just to to keep silent films in the public eye, we try to do one, one a year of, of a major feature title. So A, so that the film can be saved and B, so that uh, uh, we can, well, we, we scarcely make money on these things um, unless we're lucky enough to, to get a deal with Turner Classic Movies. But we, move, we lose money more slowly. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, the break even on William S. Hart was, you know, $6,000 just for the manufacture of the Blu-rays, not for the, the, the weeks and weeks of salary for the person working to clean up the film. But, uh, and believe me, we do not sell $6,000 worth of, of sure. Blu-rays. Um, you know, we'll sell a hundred, uh, the first release and then, uh, slowly others will dribble out over time as people hear about us and learn about us. And Mike, that's why I'm so grateful to you and your podcast, because you have got an audience of what I call our people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there, there may be only 400 of us, but, um, you know. We're, what there is is church. Um, yeah. <laughs> people who love and know silent films and who um, work to, to keep them alive by supporting um, nonprofits like us and uh, by buying the product and, you know, by, by making sure these things get seen. Wolf Lowry and other restorations from Tracy Gossel's Film Preservation Society are available now at filmpreservationsociety.org. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Shoes, daring the original musical that captures all the glamour of the south of France in exquisite technicolor, blending compelling beauty and high drama with a love story of sheer enchantment, assembling a cast of international stars to endow an enthralling film with their rich vitality, and making the outstanding debut of this or any other year a lovely red-headed girl graced with all the talents, Moira Shearer. 
It's one of the greatest British films, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger's The Red Shoes from 1948. So it's a little surprising that it took the BFI Film Classic series of monographs on classic films more than 200 entries to get around to it. But Pamela Hutchinson, who does the Silent London blog and previously appeared on Nitrateville Radio in 2018 to talk about the series entry on Pandora's Box, has now written The Red Shoes. I spoke with her from London. I don't know, how do you do one of these uh, BFI books? I noticed on their site they they have an open invitation, which seems kind of opening the floodgates. But uh, <laughs> uh, tell, yeah, tell me how that all works, since this is your second one. Okay, so uh, basically it starts with a proposal uh, from either side. Uh, in the first instance, I'm, the last uh, BFI film classic book that I wrote was on Pandora's Box. And that came about from a conversation with a commissioning editor where they, someone said, oh, you know, Pamela should write one. They said, what, should, what would you choose? And I immediately plumped for Pandora's Box. This time they were looking for a book on, Pandora, on the Red Shoes and asked me if I'd be interested so at that point you put to put together a book proposal sort of saying what it is you're going to say about the film what it is you've got your special angle your special personal insight whether there's any particular research that you know you can do uh, and that has to sort of uh, get approved by peer review and then and then you're just let loose with a deadline really to try and tell <laughs> okay. a story a story about a really popular film in this case that will be compelling for a hundred or so pages <laughs> Yeah, I was kind of surprised even that they hadn't done it already, because it yeah. seems such a quintessential British film. Yeah, uh, I mean, they've done Hoffman, Matter of Life and Death, I Know Where I'm Going, uh, Blimp, I think, but they, they haven't done this one yet, so I was I was lucky there was an opening. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of bringing up the rear, surprisingly, because uh, it is certainly, I think at one time at least, it would have been their most famous film to most people. I think that might still be the case, yeah. I think especially in America, but just a sort of global recognition of it, it's their most successful film. Right. All right, so you had to tell them what your your point of view on it was. What was your point of view on it? <gasps> oh, well, of course, this is where you have to sort of shake yourself down because my first point of view was, you know, oh, my good gosh, I love the red shoes. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, uh, you know, just mentioning that the name of the film gets me sort of thinking about how much I love cinema. So um, I decided that there were a few different angles to to attack it from. I thought you have to tell the production history of the film. Obviously, it's actually the Powell and Pressburger film with the longest production history and probably also the longest post-production life. So you have to tell that story, but also not get too bogged down in it because there's there's so much more to the film. So I wanted to really dive into the the symbolism of the red shoes and what that means what that means at the beginning when you're thinking about how you would make a ballet film based on this this myth of the red shoes and how they use that symbol in within the film and how much power they give it but also what it's come to mean to generations of women because this film women and everyone really because this film really inspires people to make art which is so fantastic and yet it has this terrible terrible um catastrophic ending that can be read in a very reductive way it has been considered sometimes a kind of warning you know to women you you, you're not going to be able to get what you want out of life if you have an artistic impulse life will crush it so I really I was drawn to that puzzle and the sort of third thing I really wanted to do was to uh, bring it into the context of ballet at the time 
uh, ballet in Britain at the time, which was going through this kind of, they've been trying to have this resurgence, the birth of British ballet, and then the war would come along. And so they were very sensitive to their sort of self-perception, I think, in the mid to late 40s. It's a very strange time. And this film is ballet-wise kind of set out of time. It's from the sort of 20s and 30s, really. Yeah, it belongs to that range of wartime films in which the war never happens that seem to be set on Earth B or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, there's no, um, there's no rush thing. There's no austerity in this film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think Powell and Pressburger even knew the meaning of the word austerity. But uh, yeah, the okay. Well, starting with you know the production history. I mean, in a sense, it kind of runs even before Powell and Pressburger entered the picture because Alexander Corda had this idea of making a ballet film with Merle Oberon, who I guess he was married to at that point or was his girlfriend and future wife or whatever. Um, and it kind of, you know, what you, the way you describe it, it sure sounds like pretty much a standard uh, Hollywood musical. I mean, it's sort of got the plot of, you know, the, the usual 42nd Street plot of, uh, you know, the, the unknown uh, rising star who gets her big chance and all that, which is not a film that we would particularly remember today if, if it had not been shaped by Palin Pressburger in a different direction. Yeah, no, the first screenplay, yeah, very much is it's set in New York. We have the sort of sort of a vaudeville stage. It's about, it's got tap dancing in it. It's got everything that you'd expect from a sort of musical comedy about uh, chorus line hoofers, really. But it is technically about ballet. What Emmerich Pressburger does when he gets a chance to rewrite the screenplay, when Corda hires him to do that, is he brings in some texture of everything that he knows about ballet goes off to Covent Garden and absorbs something. But he tells a story that's about people who are motivated not by a desire for stardom or glamour, but for art and art itself, which is, is somewhere there in that first screenplay, but Paul and Pressburg are, are going to bring that to its full fruition. Uh, it's, it's a world away uh, from, from the original screenplay. And, of course, it's set on the south coast of France, which is a, a place that both Powell and Pressburger knew quite well and very fondly and identified with the kind of origin story of this film, which is the brutal break between Sergei Diaghilev of the Ballet Russe and his lead dancer, Vaslav Nijinsky. So the sort of uh, the tragic romance of the 1910s. Now, and it sounds like there had been a few attempts to make ballet films before, but they had not particularly impressed anybody or created a worldwide sensation for eight-year-old girls to take a ballet or anything like that. No, I mean, ballet was increasingly popular, particularly in Britain, and so there were films like Dance Pretty Lady and things like that, and uh, this really cute film with Margaret O'Brien, The Unfinished Dance, I think. Um, the def Ballet was something that was quite cinematic and getting cameo appearances from Margot Fontaine, but there wasn't anything that really was filled with that passion for the art form that was unapologetically about the sort of complexities and nuances of ballet. I don't know whether it was the same in this in America, but in this country in the 1930s, there was a really popular children's novel called Ballet Shoes, which absolutely addicting kind of novel of three orphan sisters who go to... Um, go to drama school and the youngest child is, is a ballet prodigy, prodigy and so forth. There was this sort of, a lot of girl, 
girls who were very young in the 1930s would have fallen in love with that book. And then they grew up a little bit and they were so ready for the red shoes to come out in 1948. Well, let's, let's talk about the, uh, you know, it begins with a Hans Christian Andersen tale, um, which is indeed kind of dark and seems to be suggesting that women should not try and go above their class or do anything uh, you know, it's it's not an entirely heartwarming story. Uh, There's nothing heartwarming about it at all. It's stomach turning. Yeah, yeah. Tell tell us a little bit more about the original story. So the original story, it was one that was quite personal to Hans Christian Andersen. And if you don't know much about Hans Christian Andersen, he had a lot of psychological hang-ups and he had a very deprived childhood, which, you know, his father was a shoemaker and he did have some personal shoe-related traumatic memories. But he he comes up with this story about a young girl who's really poor and she desperately wants a pair of shoes. And eventually she gets this pair of red shoes, which are so amazingly beautiful that when she walks into church, the statues bend to look at her feet. I mean, this is how distracting and beautiful they are. And when she starts to dance in them, she can't stop. And this is the, this is the sort of uh, the bitter pill to swallow for the vanity of having enjoyed wearing such fine shoes is that you, you can't stop dancing. And she dances and dances to the point of exhaustion. People die. It's terrible. She asks the woodcutter to cut off her feet and the bloody stumps just dance in front of her, blocking her way to church, which is where she wants to get to, uh, to atone for her sins. It, die, it ends almost with a happy ending in that she dies, but that means she finally, she's finally welcomed into heaven where no one, it says, will ask her about the red shoes ever again. <laughs> yeah, boy. We, you know, it just shows you women should not mess with things that they don't know about. Um, <laughs> well, I right. can tell you that men are awful because the shoes are cursed by an old soldier. So, I mean, you uh, could just, like, win it either way. Yeah. Um, all right. So why why did Powell and Pressburger find this a promising story for for a ballet movie? <laughs> So, I mean, actually, the Red Shoes are in that original screenplay. That original screenplay that had nothing to do with either of them. But it's perfect for Pal and Pressburger, because one of the great things about Pal and Pressburger is that they will cast aside all realism, all narrative logic in favour for an overriding symbol at any time. So if you want to explain anything that happens in this film, you say, well, the power of the red shoes and you might be talking about the power of the artistic impulse you might be talking about ambition but really it's always uh, they always return to the symbol of the red shoes and it stands in for everything that drives our protagonists towards greatness and towards death and it's interesting you know despite the fact that that's all right there in the movie um uh, it's a movie that thousands of young women have taken as inspiration nevertheless i mean my my mom was of an age to suddenly want to take up ballet because she (laughs) saw this movie uh it's one of those movies it wasn't like one of the biggest money makers of 1948 in america but by about 1953 it was and it would just you know in some ways i think it, it kind of launched art cinema in America as much as any single film did because it was hugely successful playing for years and years, drawing, you know, whole ballet classes, taking everybody to it. Um, and you think, you know, that enrollment's going to go down after they see where ballet leads, but no, not at all the case. You know, the excitement of being that I could become Moira Shearer in the red shoes, you know, is, is so huge for, for the receptive audience. 
I think it's it's because it's so much bigger than you expect it to be. The ballet is so much more extravagant. The characters are so much larger and more temperamental and exciting than you might think. There's there's an awful lot of that, uh, oh, well, you just have to knuckle down and go to bar class kind of uh, stuff in there. But it's, it's all about how you will be exalted by art or how it is the best thing that could ever happen to you. And it, that is just so alluring. And I, I love the reception of the film in America because it was all predicated on, you know, repeat viewings and this idea that American audiences saw Maura Shearer and thought, wonderful, she's, she's like Ginger Rogers, which, you know, they're, they're not really alike at all. But I think there's something about this film where, you know, it arrived as sort of one of the British prestige productions because as it had ballet in it, much as at the same time, uh, Laurence Olivier's black and white Hamlet would have been considered sort of prestige British thing. But it taps in to something that is the appeal of Hollywood cinema, the, the grand spectacle, the, uh, the collective endeavour, the putting on a show and this kind of indulgence in the joys of technicolor and cinematic technique and this very obviously this very strong star figure the ingenue so it sort of both isn't something that you could imagine being made by hollywood but it sort of fits in with what if you love hollywood you're going to it's going to really appeal to you uh, yeah i mean you know i love the uh, the americans for taking it to heart when uh, the british critics all fretted over it a little bit more Right. Well, yeah, one of the things that the critics seem not to be very receptive to is exactly what we love about it, which is, you know, the 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 cinematicness of it. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that the the dance is not at all realistic. It mm-hmm. is kind of an upscale version of those uh, nightclub numbers in, mm-hmm. you'll see in a movie where somebody steps out on a stage that's like six foot by eight foot and suddenly it turns into this giant production number with hundreds of, of, you know, chorus girls and, you know, the, the camera doing swooping moves through, through a stage the size of an air hanger and stuff like that. I mean, it's got that kind of bigness to it and it does seem like British critics sort of sniffed at, at that being, Oh, it's Powell and Presper overdoing it as usual. And of course that's exactly what we love about them. Yeah, and you know, um, it's just exactly like those numbers that you you mentioned. Except you know, the chorus girls are all playing zombies and streetwalkers. So right. <laughs> you know, there's something that, you know. British critics certainly at this period were quite delicate, and the darkness of this film, and particularly the violence of the ending, they were very uncomfortable with. And I think they were slightly a little bit worried about uh, um, what's the word again? You know, really pronouncing on whether this film was good or not because they understood it might be compared against the standards of a more revered art form, ballet. Uh, and you know all the ballet world they don't don't worry they piled in but you know as cinema it's great cinema that's exactly what it is I mean it's sometimes great cinema to the detriment of the ballet but the brilliance of the ballet just feeds in it's just one of the many elements that makes it so cinematic you know the the beautiful painterly designs the great cinematography and the choreography all feed into the great cinematic bigness as you say which is exactly the right word of the ballet itself and, and the wider film yeah, it, there's an interesting thing. You talk at one point about something that Powell and Pressburger had written about their various uh, principles in making mm-hmm. the film. And the one you focus on particularly is that they said they don't believe in escapism, which is incredible to me because to me, if I think of an escapist film, I can't think of one much better than, say, I know where I'm going, you know, mm-hmm. swoony romance on a uh, – 
you know, on a mm-hmm. rustic Scottish Isle. I mean, what's what's not to love about that? And you know, I guess there's a quite a culture of people visiting. Uh, I forget the name of the actual island, but uh, okay. Caloran is a fictional island, but it's filmed up in Mull. Mull, yeah. right? Yeah. And you know, people visit it just to be in the place. You know, go in that little phone booth next to the waterfall that that's in. <laughs> I know where I'm going. Uh, so they didn't consider themselves doing escapism, even as it seems like that to me. But I guess it's it's on a deeper level than what people associate with the word escapism. You know, it's. I mean, it's kind of a romantic triangle, but it's not the usual one. Yeah, so if you think about I Know Where I'm Going, I mean, it does have this beautiful romance where she falls in love with a cursed laird and beautiful country, and she falls in love with his way of life and the locals and all this kind of thing. But also, um, the Ministry of Information wanted that film to be about um, about prudence, that worried that uh, British people would spend too much. And it's actually very serious about poverty, about the sort of... Um, shillings and pence kind of economic reality of people living up in the highlands and you know people who spend too much down in 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 the south in england and and come here and ruin the economy for this natural economy that's that's living up in highlands and if you asked emmerich pressburger who you know obviously had fled the nazi regime at least twice a jewish man and was considered an enemy alien in the country that he'd made his home all through during the war if you asked him what it was about he said it was about sort of knocking out the idea that some people are born superior to others which in the context of uh, the second world war is the most chilling theme to adopt so i think for them you know films could entertain and they could maybe uplift but they always were about something that had like a cold heart realism something that hits you you know in the solar plexus that kind of uh, importance of what the story you're watching has to your real life you know and you you know that generations of young women who've watched the red shoes are dazzled by the spectacle as we all are but take that ending and really think about whether it's their life and the choices they've had to make between their career their aspirations and their role as women in you know society or you think about um your own mother your own grandmother or just even even if you're more detached than that just great figures from the ballet world like diana gould who gave up her career after when it barely started because she got married so you know the Red Shoes is a, a vision for the eyes, uplift for the eyes, but uh, you are left with these really troubling questions. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why people are drawn back to it, because it, it means more than just a show. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's interesting. I don't think it's just women, although obviously it's a mm. film that women mostly relate to. But, I mean, we all make choices in life mm. that close one door and open another. And it's it's just frank about art being one of those in art at the very highest level being a very demanding one. Uh, You know, I I think of, you know, there's a line that I think was Charles Bukowski or somebody who said that the purpose of life is to find something you love and let it kill you. And that's (laughs) That's the theme of the red shoes. That's the theme of the red shoes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, The, uh, I think it's interesting, you know, yeah, because there's so much sort of evidence of all kinds of of women having these very strong reactions to the film. And completely unscientifically, Mike, while I was working on this film, anytime I talk to American friends, I just give you a a dollar for every time someone said, my dad went to see that film so many times, or my father was obsessed with that film. And they can't all have just solely been motivated by the beauty of Moira Shearer, you know. 
from my unscientific survey, a lot of people's fathers were obsessed with this film. So that's, you know, that feeds into your argument that it's, you know, not just, uh, not just about those hard feminist choices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now an interesting thing you get into at the end is talking about, uh, the, the sort of gay sensibility reflected in the film. Now, I mean, Powell and Presper, you know, Powell in particular was most emphatically not gay. Uh, <laughs> quite. I think, I think that's, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he had been around people. I'm sure the, the ballet world certainly puts one around people. Diaghilev is, is an example in the film. You have, um, Anton Walbrook and Robert Heltman. I'm sure there are others. And, you know, so that, that sort of gay sensibility about art and life figures, you know, sort of hovering in the background. Obviously it's a time when it couldn't be too explicit, but it's not that tough to figure Lermontov out, particularly if you know a little bit about Diaghilev and Nijinsky and so on. Yeah, I mean, the people who are watching this film would have known the Diaghilev-Dijinsky story. It, it, it was known. And um, although Anton Warbrook, for example, was a closeted gay man, very much so, um, this role was, the role of Lermontov was written or rather rewritten for him specifically. And you'll see the changes in the screenplay that at one point he almost admits to sort of having some kind of romantic feeling for Vicky, but that that's long gone. And what we're left with is, uh, you know, he has a love for her, he's jealous in a way that you will never understand. It's one of these classic, uh, great sort of coded gay lines. Right. And, and Powell said, you know, this performance of Walbrooks, and who would never have wanted to out Walbrook, but he said, poor performance of Walbrooks was filled with homosexuality. So you, you wonder exactly all the different buttons you're hitting with um, what an audience in 1948 thinks when they think about a gay man working in the art world. They think about someone who isn't tied to the family for good or for ill, most likely. You know, they think about something who maybe uh, is rootless, bohemian, maybe that's a little bit sad, maybe that's some kind of fantasy of living this sort of, you know, connection-free, dependence-free life. And so whether people are thinking about it like we would think of a gay sensibility, people have all these cultural values. They attach to the idea of a lone gay man and all the lone gay men in the ballet Lermontov. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's a, there would have been a sense, however much people fully articulated or understood it, that the arts were a place where a community of gay artists could kind of make their own family, make their own world. And, mm. you know, we definitely see some of that going on in in the red shoes i think a hundred percent yeah i think and, and you know um gay sensibility either at the center of that or completely aside there's something very attractive about this idea of the found family and, and finding finding your tribe finding your people it's actually particularly pertinent to gay people particularly closeted gay people and so this film sort of sort of resonates on this kind of queer frequency uh, and it, it it means so much to people because of that and uh yeah it would it would have been wonderful if uh things could have been expressed in a different more uh a clearer and more honest way but we do have a film with a very strong queer as i say resonance yeah i mean there's sometimes in old movies that i feel like it's so barely hidden it's it really is barely <laughs> hidden you know yeah you know it's it's george mccready and gilda saying i may need both my little friends tonight gee what for are you gonna play scrabble you know so yeah and then and sometimes 
sometimes you find yourself sort of sighing because you've immediately clocked what you're meant to think about a character and they're an out-and-out villain. And what's interesting about Anton Warbrook's characterization of Boris Lermontov is that obviously Boris Lermontov does these things that are incredibly cold, incredibly brutal. Uh, but his Anton, Anton Warbrook's characterization is so great um, that he makes you sympathise with him. Uh, you do have some, you see the attraction of the man and you have some sympathy for him when he's alone and frustrated and smashing the mirror. And Powell and Pressburger do this again and again and again. They make us sympathise with people that maybe we didn't think we were going to. And the classic example, the clearest example, of course, is always Anton Warbrook's good German in the life and death of Colonel Blimp, who has the speech about what Britain means to him that could bring anyone, no matter what nation uh, they're from, to sort of the point of tears because it's so powerful about how you can identify with a place that isn't your own home and how his horror of fascism. No, it's interesting. I mean, Lermontov is, I suppose, the villain, but he's not the villain. He's, it's just he, he is the pathway to greatness for somebody and you're going to give up a lot and deal with a lot you know, following him on it. But, you know, it's there if you want it. Yeah, and, you know, it's still very attractive. I mean, if, if you want to be, you know, whether you want to be a ballerina or you want to be a journalist or you want to be a chef, you want to work with the best people in the game, right? You want to have the boss who's the best one, the most, you know, the most virtuoso director, the toughest uh, Michelin-starred chef in the world. Even if they ask a lot, you know that this is the way to, to hit the, to, to uncover the greatness within you if you feel you're talented and and it's so so seductive we know it's dangerous because we know that people who are put in these elevated positions take advantage of that um, which sort of is and isn't really what the red shoes is about but it it is very alluring i mean you know lady neston she gets him nailed in the first reel of the film where she looks at him and she says attractive brute <laughs> an insult i wish i had more used to sort of you know use in my day-to-day -day life i need to meet more attractive brutes yeah. <laughs> right anything else about uh the red shoes why it matters to you or why it matters to people you know 60 years after or whatever it is by now 70 years yeah, after. It's 75 years yeah. after i think that where did the time go I know, exactly. It seems like just yesterday we were celebrating its 50th anniversary. Uh, I mean, 75 years is getting on for phenomenal. Um, you know, you think about, you know, coming up to the centenary, we'll have to set our note in our calendars for that. I think that the power of this narrative, because it's so much, um, is quite abstract. It's just about the lure of the virtues. It's about the lure of art. It pulls people through. And therefore, this film, which has all these very specific references to ballet, and we notice that this is Maura Shearer dancing at a particular point in her career. This is the return of Leonid Messine. There's so many things that tie it to 1947 and its release in 1948. But it is just so timeless. And the vivid technicolor of, of it adds into that. Every time I watch it, I feel like I've never seen a film so bright, so red, so vivid. Uh, it still sort of takes my breath away when I see the ballet sequence. And therefore, it's, it's become its own legend. It's no longer really referring back to Nijinsky, referring back to Hans Christian Andersen. We can now just talk about the red shoes and the red shoes myth all by itself. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the color is so gorgeous. It was the, you know, when, it, when Criterion put out their first uh, slate of 4K discs, of course, the red shoes was on it. And I was 
you know, it was the one that tempted me to go out and drop 200 bucks on a 4K player or something, uh, which I have not, in fact, done because I already subscribed to the Criterion channel. And if I want to look at the ballet sequence by itself before I interview someone about it, I can do that <laughs> like I did last night. So, well, I bet you had a fantastic 17 minutes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been going around the country, this country, this small country, uh, from the top to the bottom uh, with screenings of the red shoes and talking to people about it. And I must admit, sometimes looking at the letterbox reviews uh, afterwards and the number <laughs> of times people say that they went to see it at the cinema because it's on re-release here. I went to see it at the cinema, came home and rewatched the ballet straight away. <laughs> the, the desire to do that. But imagine what it would be like to go to the cinema in 1948 and think, I want to see that again straight away. Have to go back the next night, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's funny. There's a story about Powell that I read in Film Comment years ago when he was in the south of France and he went to see uh, Keen with Yvonne Mujikin. Yeah. And there's a dance secret sequence in that. And apparently, everybody in the theater held their chairs up blocking the projector until the projectionist agreed to run it back and show that scene again. <laughs> So it is and, possible. And, you know, and it's worth it because there's a young Michael Powell in the audience. You think whatever projectionist is faced with that kind of revolt, because there is a 35 millimeter print doing the rounds in this country. You know, they're going to have to give in to the demand of the audience because there could be a future great filmmaker there just bursting to watch that sequence again. Do audiences react well to it or do people find it just over the top in a 40s way sometimes? Do you know what? I mean, as I say, because I've been talking to so many people and jumping on the Letterboxd reviews, that's not been a thing. And it is quite theatrical. Uh, and obviously the, the way that people talk, which maybe seems more uh, seems more old-fashioned almost in this country because we're more close to those nuances of, of speech and accent, but um, maybe not at all. Um, it, is, it is quite dated in the way that people behave and the theatricality of characters like Grisha, who's just the delight. But that doesn't seem to bother people at all. They enter this film and they expect almost from the beginning everything to be too much and and that is not a problem the only things that people um seem to be troubled by i mean apart from the fact that it's maybe a bit slow in, in the second half which is what the critics at the time said and it's probably objectively true um is that obviously people have such a visceral reaction to the ending and, you know, they walk out of the cinema and they're still outraged. They're still trying to process it. And I've seen, um, I've had any conversations with people who are very much at the raw stage of processing what's happened to Vicky Page. So uh, I think that's kind of a good thing that it still upsets people in that way. But the distance, no, they don't seem to find it sort of alienating at all. Yeah, that's interesting because I find a lot of times people just can't deal with yeah, just sort of the frank emotionalism of movies of that time period. They they want everybody to be sort of ironically flip, you know, to <laughs> basically be Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, you know, tossing <laughs> off the wisecracks. Uh, and oh, 40s movies just are not like that, you know. I think mean, one of the the things that this film doesn't look like doesn't immediately make you think of but you need to think about in in order to really understand how it works is the tradition of the 1940s melodrama woman's picture the woman who sort of transgresses the bounds of society and and has an impossible choice 
and a choice that she can't really make, something terrible happens. Because if you compare it to that and you situate it within those films, it bursts out of them as this very live and vivid film. And, and I think it's easier to come to terms with the ending if you think of it in the context of people watching those films. But those are exactly the kind of films that I think people find it quite hard to relate to now. So it's somewhere between those and maybe the kind of the Cirque films of the 50s, maybe that, that they've lasted better. Who knows? Yeah, it will continue to sort of puzzle people and attract them at the same time. The Red Shoes by Pamela Hutchinson is out now in the BFI Film Classics series from Bloomsbury Publishing. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Donald Bogle, Tracy Gossel, and Pamela Hutchinson, and to Cita Zinc at Running Press. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening, and if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, 